The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, this morning, our show is about many different aspects of privacy, and we're going to be talking at first about the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is brand new, and it really has an impact all over the country and internationally. So we're going to talk about that, but I'm really excited because we are going to be welcoming a law partner at Hogan Lavelle's in Washington, D.C., Mark W. Brennan, who leads an integrated technology practice that spans privacy, communications, and consumer protection issues. And his clients include leading online companies, wireless carriers, global telecommunication providers, Internet of Things, pioneers and app developers, as well as a diverse set of international clients from the transportation, financial services, education, and healthcare sectors. And he advises his clients on connected devices, artificial intelligence, cloud offerings, tech policy, and other cutting edge challenges. He's well known for his victories on Telephone Consumer Protection Act issues, and he also leads Hogan Lavelle's United States LGBT Affinity Group, and he is a chair of the firm's Pride Plus Global Allied Network. So we're just thrilled to have him come to us all the way from D.C. So thank you, Mark, for joining us. Thank you, Mari. Happy to be here and delighted to talk with you. Yes. So even you guys out on the East Coast are interested in our California Consumer Privacy Act. Let's talk about that and uh, tell us a little bit about this new privacy law. And it was just passed recently. And it's it's uh, creating quite a stir for all of the companies. Let's talk a little bit about what it is and what happened and how it's going to affect consumers as well as companies, all right? Certainly. Uh, and, and yes, this is something that has uh, drawn a lot of attention across the country and, and frankly, outside the U.S. as well. Uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act was signed into law at the end of June, and a number of the requirements will take effect January 1st, 2020. Uh, in terms of what happened, there there had been a ballot initiative set to appear on the California election ballot in November that would have focused on a number of potential privacy requirements uh, that would apply to 
companies doing business in the state. And there were a, a number of concerns with some of the provisions in the ballot initiative, and the California legislature decided to act and acted quickly uh, to impose new legislation at the end of June. And the result is this uh, this new act again, the CCPA or the California Consumer Privacy Act. And what's what's interesting when there is, um, you know, uh, uh, it's not on the ballot when it's an initiative. It's harder to change, but when you actually have a bill that passes, it's easier to change. So, so the legislators thought, uh oh, we better pass this real quick. So then we're going to have a, a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance to make some changes to it. So uh, that's kind of how it is. Not every state has initiatives, but uh, California does. So let's talk a little bit about um, what are some of the requirements that are going to go in effect in 2020? And, and certainly, and that's right, that it, it was part of the interest on in the legislature's part to make sure that as a condition of passing the legislation, and this was actually written into the law, that the, the ballot initiative would be formally withdrawn. So right. there, there actually was a, a direct tie. Well, so the new law, it applies to companies that do business in California, Mm -hmm. and it imposes additional disclosure obligations associated with the personal information that they collect or that they sell or that they disclose. And it also grants Californians new rights over personal information about them, including, for example, rights to access that information, uh, in some instances, uh, rights to request deletion of the information and a right to opt out of the sale of the information. It also has uh, anti-discrimination provisions that limit a business's ability to deny services or charge different prices or offer different qualities of service to California consumers who exercise their right. And one provision that has received a lot of attention, the the California Attorney General has primary enforcement responsibility for the act. And it has the authority to impose civil penalties for up to $7,500 per intentional violation. Mm-hmm. And the law also allows consumers under some circumstances to bring private actions for certain data incidents that result uh, from uh, a business's failure to maintain reasonable security practice. Right. So do you, you know, in, in working with all of your clients, do you think that there are some areas of the California law that need to be changed after it goes into effect? Certainly. And I think that's in part a reflection of how quickly the <laughs> law was, was passed. Right, right, uh, it, right. You know, from the time it was introduced to the time it was signed into law was approximately a week. Uh, and and that's, that's light speed by any measure, right? Um, they were scared of the no, initiative. Sure. <laughs> they were, they were <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that's a, certainly a reflection of how, how, <laughs> how bad things were perceived to be under the ballot initiative. Right. Uh, but there were a number of provisions that were that were brought over from the ballot initiative. And, you know, I, I think you could look at, at things from a, a clarifying perspective as well as some substantive concerns. From the, from the clarifi- clarifying perspective, there are many internal inconsistencies, cross-references, stray words, and all that. That certainly should be cleaned up just a matter of uh, you know, good government. But right, right. Uh, a lot of those inconsistencies, unfortunately, uh, have potentially significant impact depending on how you read them. So it's really important that the legislature get those cleaned up. Uh, and, and, you know, that's that may take several iter- iterations because there frankly are uh, a lot uh, of those in this 
this bill or in this law, excuse me. Um, now, as far as the substance, I think there are a number of areas where the law just doesn't quite hit the mark in terms of uh, where I think contemporary privacy expectations are. Uh, it doesn't necessarily reflect contemporary uh, business models or the, the right balance to allow for appropriate innovation. Uh, and also in some areas, I think, puts a, a potential undue strain competitively for American businesses that are looking to, to compete globally. So, uh, you know, to maybe give a few examples, yeah. the, the key definitions in this law need some work. Uh, the definition of personal information, the definition of um, sell or sale, uh, definition of, of third party, uh, all of these are important, and and from a certain perspective, they they track in part some things that we saw with the European uh, General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, but in other areas, they go quite far beyond that, and frankly, are counterproductive from a consumer privacy perspective. So the definitions need to be. Uh, tailored a bit more to reflect contemporary privacy understandings and, and to allow, as I mentioned, businesses to, to take privacy protective steps. Uh, and, and to give one example for personal information, when, yeah. when device information uh, and household information is swept in with other personally tied information, I think that, that runs the risk of uh, of disincentivizing businesses from, 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 keeping information away from the individual's names. And so you just want to be, you want to be careful. And I think there are ways to address these issues, but frankly, it's just, it's just worded very broadly and, and that needs to be adjusted. Yeah. So Another how, but one, Mark, oh, let's, go let's go with that one. So could you give um, an example of what specifically you would change then and how you would change it? So, you know, California has defined personal information, for example, under our, security breach legislation, you know, we've done that. And um, so, you know, I, I don't remember, and I saw it when it was, you know, the bill and the initiative. So is it, are they using the same definition of personal information as they did under the security breach law, or is it much further? Uh, it is much more broad, although that, that definition you mentioned is the applicable definition for the private right of action for oh, security I see. breaches. So, okay. So okay. the you know the, the trigger still tracks back to that same information. And the, the key difference is that under uh, what we see in other parts of U.S. law, as a general matter for the things like uh, security breaches, you're looking for the potential uh, you know un unauthorized access or disclosure of of somebody's name alongside the other key piece of information, like a social security number, a driver's license number, financial account numbers and passwords. Right. Uh, and there are other laws out there that, that may apply certain requirements to devices, especially outside the U.S. Right. But what the California law does is expands this concept of personal information to not only information that might identify a person, but information that, that could reasonably be linked directly or indirectly with a person or is mm. capable of being associated with a person. Mm. So it's incredibly broad. And from a certain perspective, it's difficult to understand what the outer limits of that might be. Right. But it doesn't stop there. It's not only the information that, 
identifies or is capable of being associated with or could reasonably be linked directly or indirectly with a particular consumer. It also applies to all of those things if it's potentially linked to a household. And mm -hmm. there you run into a number of unfortunate circumstances where if you're thinking through some of these other requirements in the law, uh, the access to information, the, the ability to have the specific information that, that a company may have about somebody, uh, you could appreciate in a household setting, you have to be concerned about scenarios of domestic violence, spousal abuse, and others, and, and how uh, organizations are expected to comply with these requirements without potentially causing harm in those settings. Right. And, and there are also scenarios where uh, you can imagine that somebody, particularly a minor, may not want others in the household to to know certain information about them. And I, and, and I think you, I'm not sure that this law draws the right balance. And I hope that the legislature takes appropriate action on this. Right, right. So what do you think in terms of now that we've passed this law here in California? And, you know, California has really led the way in privacy legislation for many years already. And um, so We've seen that like when we were one of the first states to have security breach law, I think we were the first one, and then other states followed. Um, do you see other states really following, you know, what our, our approach and uh, how does that, how do you think that's going to be, uh, you know, expanded maybe in federal law? Well, it's, it's certainly possible. Um, and I think there's, a, there's an element of dark humor here that for many years, those of us in the, in the privacy space and, and familiar with the policy discussions that have been occurring, I, you know, you, you hear time and again, oh, it's only a matter of time before we have a, a, another privacy law in the U.S. In some respects, there was a tension at the federal level for years and, and then uh, at times at individual states. And, you know, you would hear the refrain, well, it, we're only one major headline incident away from new privacy legislation. But then California passes a law that seeks to be comprehensive, and then everybody's shocked by it, right, because of how quickly, you know, this, this was not how yeah. it was supposed to happen, right. but, but yeah. everybody was certainly uh, preparing for this for, you know, decades at this point. Right. My hope is that it, should there be additional states that look to act in this area, like California, that they'll take more than a week to do so. Right. And... <laughs> You know, I, I think if we can start there and, and say, look, you know, take your time. Don't copy and paste what California did. Uh, same thing for the federal government. But the, the bigger question really is whether there needs to be any other legislation. And, if, and, and that's an important question. I think California, as I mentioned, was driven in part by this ballot initiative um, where there wasn't necessarily consensus on, on the need for the legislation uh, or need for the requirements. But there were, there were strong advocates on one side. Uh, for other states, I think you, you sort of have to go through the, the question of what, what would the appropriate outcome be, and if there is to be any legislation, what are the areas that provide the right balance for, for businesses to innovate, for consumers to be protected, and, and what, are the, what are the real harms you're seeking to address? And, and again, I think the California law doesn't quite get that right. There have been other examples in the U.S. and not just in the privacy space where maybe there's a better balance that continues to protect consumers. And for the federal, uh, at, at the federal level, I think there the question is going to be what role does the federal government want to have 
because as the experience with California shows, uh, states are willing to try to to do things in this area. And certainly there are questions about the extent to which the states have the authority to impose certain requirements, but they're trying. And and so the, the federal government, you know, I think we will see over the the next few weeks and months, some additional effort by the federal government. We've already been hearing about uh, different activities in terms of developing policy positions, but we'll have to see where that goes. And, and I also think we, you want to be careful here uh, when you look to the other states, again, not to mimic what California did, because there very well could be changes to the California law over the next year, year and a half before the law goes into effect. And so it's, it's a bit like trying to build the plane while you fly it, but certainly you want to at least know what parts are going into the plane. Right, right. Well, you know, we've seen like with the uh, security breach legislation, other states have used some of the things that we've had and have gone further and have done different things. And it's been a long time now um, that the federal government has not really a uh, enacted a federal security breach law um and from my perspective at least from california i mean it's it's working for us and um you know i i would hate to see it get watered down so i think that's the thing when it's when it's at the federal level sometimes you, it doesn't have the chance to really see what's working and what's not working whereas in the california law now that it was legislative like you were saying before, you know, there can be cleanup legislation, there can be changes, there can be a chance to see what's working and what's not working and what needs to be changed. So I would like to see us, um, you know, have that opportunity. And like you said, have the states have an opportunity to really think it through a little bit better. So let's... Right. And as you noted, it's an important conversation to have. And I'm glad that I'm glad that it's in the headlines and that people are talking about this. I think when, you know, some people like to think of the states as the the laboratories uh, right, for right. certain consumer protection issues, right? right. And, and I think an example where California was not only the trendsetter, but became the de facto national standard was with the California Online Privacy Protection Act right. um, with the requirements to the, the website privacy policies and so forth. And that, that really set a, a positive model that even if you weren't necessarily doing a lot of business in California, that you, like I said, it became the de facto standard. But in when it comes to this new law, in terms of that laboratory analogy, this was more the equivalent of, of having the, the chemicals go wrong and you blow up the entire lab. <laughs> well, we'll see. Hopefully that won't happen. But I know even with the, um, you know, FACTA, you know, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act years ago, when most of, quite a bit of it came from California legislation, the identity theft legislation. So, um, so we'll see what happens, you know, we'll just take it a step by step, but uh, like it got enacted real quick. And I think when there's initiatives, and I don't know how many states allow initiatives, but when there's an initiative and the people do this themselves, um, the legislature has to really uh, take heed and, and do something. So that's kind of what happened. Let's switch gears a little bit because you're such an expert on the Telephone Consumer Protection Act issues. Can you explain for my listeners what that particular act is and why it's so important? 
certainly. The, the TCPA. So we're switching now from CCPA to TCPA. And, <laughs> all these number, you know, all these letters. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, again, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. This is the federal robocalling statute. So you right. read in the headlines about robocalls and the nuisance to consumers. Uh, this is the federal law. It imposes certain restrictions on calls made with certain technologies. Uh, and these, this is where you have the consent requirements. This is not only about marketing calls, uh, and it's separate from what we think of as the traditional do not call registry that's there for telemarketing. The TCPA is about the technologies that are used to place the calls. Mm -hmm. And you may hear things like auto dialer. There's a phrase in the, the law, the automatic telephone dialing system. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also pre-recorded or artificial voice. And the way the law operates, if you use an auto dialer or pre-recorded or artificial voice, uh, you need consent in certain circumstances. And the statute provides for um, the there's a private right of $500 per call or text for violations. Uh, class actions are allowed where they're otherwise allowed by the state. And the Federal Communications Commission implements the statute and has separate enforcement authority. State AGs can also enforce. And so this has become, over the years now, one of the most sued under federal consumer protection statutes. Uh, and it continues to be something that you see get a lot of attention, not only in the media, but also uh, at hearings in Congress and at the FCC. Right. And so um, what is the most recent, uh, you know, issues that are happening with TCPA? Well, we've had an interesting few years. And uh, I think a, a, an important benchmark was a, a notable 2015 decision out of the Federal Communications Commission that sought to interpret a number of terms in the TCPA and how the, the consent requirements and, and liability frameworks operated. Uh, at the time, this was you know, an FCC led by uh, people appointed under the prior administration, elected by, uh, you know, and so forth. And, and so you, you, you saw a very broad approach to some of the terms. So a, a, an expansive interpretation of what an auto dialer is, right. a, a very um, ambiguous uh, and, and frankly uh, impossible to comply with approach mm. to what happens when you get consent, but then when you place the call, you've hit somebody else at the number, that this concept of calls to reassign numbers. And, and there were, it, it was just a, a very, um, a decision that was very difficult to uh, reconcile with how, how you operationalize the requirements and frankly didn't leave companies with a, a clear path to how they could comply. And so right. you'd have good faith callers that might be compliance minded, but couldn't find the right path. And it also left a very plaintiff's friendly litigation environment. And when you have class action involved and, and the potential for these statutory damages, oh, that, that was a bad mix. Yes. So the D.C. Circuit reviewed that 2015 decision uh, and on certain key issues vacated the FCC's decision. So it found that the, the auto dialer interpretation, which would have covered pretty much any technology out there uh, beyond a standard desk phone, uh, to be uh, arbitrary and capricious. Uh, and, and the phrasing was utterly unreasonable. So that got struck down. Uh, on the calls to reassign numbers, the FCC's decision was also struck down and, and the court uh, 
required them to, to do a redo on this issue. And so for those and, and a couple other issues, the FCC now is taking a look anew under the new administration with the, again, the officials that have been, um, you know, the new chair has been uh, selected by uh, President Trump uh, and, and all of the commissioners are confirmed by the Senate. And you, you have a, a new administration looking at these issues in light of that decision, in light of what happened in 2015, and an ongoing proceeding to find out, well, what should the answers be? What, what is the right balance here to protect consumers uh, from unwanted calls and to make sure that good faith callers are still able to communicate with their customers and that you don't have a situation where consumers are unable to receive the, the calls and texts that they, they've re requested. Uh, so there's a pending proceeding at the FCC. Uh, we, we expect that the agency will begin to address some of these key issues that, that cut across industry sectors uh, and, and start to map out an appropriate framework for compliance. Uh, I also think you're, you're going to see continued enforcement action by this FCC against the bad actors. I, I think in pr previous years, uh, there was a, a bit of a question as to whether the FCC was really targeting bad actors or was pretty much just lumping everybody together in a, a blind pursuit against what it viewed as robocalls. Uh -huh. But I think this FCC has, has done a very good job of, of targeting the bad actors, the scammers, the fraudsters, the spoofers, right. the parties that are using these technologies to reach as many random consumers as they can, they can find to try and scam them out of money. Uh, so hopefully that enforcement will continue. Uh, and on the, on the side with uh, legitimate callers, you'll see the FCC develop an appropriate compliance framework. Yeah, so big changes coming. Um, I, I, we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to get to, I, I'm fascinated by artificial intelligence and it's, you know, on everybody's mind. Can you just t tell us, of, we have just about three minutes left, about what developments you're seeing with artificial intelligence and privacy? I know this could take hours. We could have done a whole show on this, which we may have to do. But just give us like a little overview, a little taste. Certainly. Well, AI is uh, is more than just the latest it topic. Yeah. Uh, I do think it's it presents a more fundamental change for the tech sector, for the privacy community, and for the legal community uh, more broadly. Uh, I, I think you'll start to see some more concrete examples of, of how this all weaves together in, in the next couple years. But one of the things that we're seeing on AI, I and mean, there's a lot of discussion out there uh, about how the additional ability to receive, process, and analyze large amounts of data can, can both be helpful and raise concerns. And I, I think one of the, you know, when you look at uh, areas like uh, medical records, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of positive uh, research, helpful research, groundbreaking research that's being done today by looking at groups of patients that have uh, similar diagnoses or similar symptoms and to understand the, the commonalities and, and so forth going forward, right? So there's a lot of potential for AI on the research front, but you can imagine that looking back to this, this notion of identifying individuals, there will be privacy concerns. Right. But what, what's important, though, is to make sure that we're, we're, we're discussing 
both the the potential, you know, not just the challenges that can come up, but the the potential for for uh, you know innovation here and the potential to really provide good health and safety outcomes on a number of fronts. I also think there's there's a lot of a lot of good that AI technologies can do to support and enhance diversity and inclusion efforts at, at organizations. You know, I, I think you know if you started from the premise, not just how do we how do we use AI in a way that doesn't entrench discrimination or or advance existing biases, but if you actually started from the premise of how how do we use this technology to eliminate some of the biases or right. to enhance our our inclusive efforts. I think there's a lot of potential there, and we're we're engaging on a variety of fronts with clients, with community organizations, uh, and others to to really see uh, what can be done here. And there's a, there's just a lot of potential. I, I think you know just to tie things back real quick to the California law, this is another example where the more expansive you you look at things like personal information the more difficult you make it for legitimate research, legitimate innovation. And again, that's why the balance is going to be important going forward. Well, perfect. You ended just on time. And I, I think all of this means, you know, gets us into thinking privacy by design, that if we, as we're developing AI or whatever technology we're going to use, if we build that privacy into the architecture, it's going to be so much better. And hopefully it will help us to continue to use technology to improve our lives, but at the same time, protect our privacy. So it's time to go. Would you just give your website? And we thank you so much, Mark Brennan. I'm an active blogger on our our privacy blog. It's www.hl, for Hogan Levels, hldataprotection.com. Well, there we can get lots of wonderful answers. So thank you. And we will have you back again, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Nervine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. And visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 